Let me invite you now to turn to the back middle portion of your worship guide, where we are continuing our series through Paul's letter to the Ephesian church. If you arrived late uh, and you don't know who I am, uh, my name is Mike. Uh, I, I have the privilege to be the pastor at Christ Church Halifax, and it's my privilege to be able to open God's Word with you all this morning. We're going to be reading it in a moment. Let me just introduce you to what's going on here. You're holding uh, in your hand or in the bulletin, if you've got your Bibles open, uh, an ancient letter that the Apostle Paul wrote to the churches in the ancient city of Ephesus, which is in modern-day Turkey. Uh, wrote it probably sometime around uh, 50, 60 A.D., and uh, in our second chapter, we've read through the first chapter, uh, Paul writes to this church, uh, this gathering of Christians in this city, to tell them what the world is really like, to tell them what they're really like. Paul doesn't pull any punches in these 10 verses we're about to read. In just 10 verses, he swings from the unfiltered bad news about sin, about death, to unbelievable good news uh, about Christ, our Savior. In just 10 verses, Paul gives an account of the whole world, a true account of humanity, uh, which of course includes, includes all of us, um, and it presents us as we actually are. Not, not how we present ourselves, not how we like to think of ourselves, but as we truly are. And this news, which starts off bad, it might tempt us and drive us towards despair, if not for the work of Christ in this world that he made and loved. I'm going to invite Alistair forward. He's going to be reading from Ephesians chapter 2. Again, if you have it in hand, uh, please turn to it now. So Ephesians chapter 2, starting at verse 1. And you were dead in the trespasses and sins in which you once walked, following the course of this world, following the prince of the power of the air, the spirit that is now at work in the sons of disobedience among whom we all once lived in the passions of our flesh, carrying out the desires of the body and the mind, and were by nature children of wrath like the rest of mankind. But God, being rich in mercy because of the great love with which he loved us, even when we were dead in our trespasses, made us alive together with Christ, by grace you have been saved and raised us up with him and seated us with him in the heavenly places in Christ Jesus, so that in the coming ages he might show the immeasurable riches of his grace in kindness towards us in Christ Jesus. For by grace you have been saved through faith, and this is not your own doing, it is the gift of God, not a result of works so that no one may boast, for we are his workmanship created in Christ Jesus for good works which God prepared, prepared beforehand that we should walk in them. This is the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. Let's pray. Our Father, would you soften our hearts in this time as we hear both bad and good news from your word. We trust that the power is in your word. It's not in me. It's not in our hearts. It's not in our understanding. It is in your word. So help us now to heed your word. Help us to receive it all, really, the good and the bad, as, as good news, because you are a great physician. You're the one who rightly diagnoses and cures our ills. For those who are here this morning, Father, who are tempted towards pride, to imagine they know better than you, that their word and the word of others can stand in judgment over your word, would you humble them today? For those who feel the overwhelming weight of their sin and have lost sight of your love, have forgotten your mercy and grace towards repentant sinners, would you now overwhelm them with the comforts of Christ? 
For those who are ignorant, who are unknowing, who have simply never heard this word before, would you graciously enlighten and enamor them with your brilliant glory in the person of your son Jesus, who's come to save the proud, who's come to rescue the despairing, who's come to give life to the unaware all alike. We pray all these things in his saving name. Amen. Hip-hop MCs, entrepreneurs, and faithful Christians. These are three people we don't tend to group together often. But these three people, actually, these groups of people, all have something uh, in common. Again, all three, three, uh, hip-hop MCs, entrepreneurs, and faithful Christians, they love talking about where they've come from, where they are now, and where they're going. This is the story that they all share. All three have a similar story arc about them. The story of their past failures, their dark beginnings, a dramatic change in their fortunes in the present, and their hope for a glorious future. It's a story that, that starts very dark, it gets bright, and then just keeps on rising in glory. Now, there are, of course, very important differences between all three groups of people, uh, which we'll get into, but just grant me this in broad strokes to start off with. A very common theme, if you're all familiar with hip-hop, is, you know, started from the bottom, now we're here, right? Uh, you know, teachers told me I'd never amount to nothing, but now it's all good right? Like, we've, we've arrived. But of course, that's not enough just being here. The world's now our oyster. Everything exists for our pleasure, for our leisure, right? It's a party that'll never end. Uh, entrepreneurs, similarly, they love talking about how once upon a time, their business was just a desk, a whiteboard, you know, a, a computer and a lawn chair inside of their garage. It was just an idea. But they kept at it through hard work, through hustle, taking risks, maybe going bankrupt a couple times, now they're cruising, right? They finally got the money. They got the real office with windows. They got the hired employees. They got the notoriety, the respect that they knew they deserved all along. But of course, that's not enough. There's more to come. Maybe, you know, we'll sell the business and we'll just build a new one from the ground up. Maybe we'll expand to new countries, new continents. Maybe this is just the beginning of a new business empire. Paul's point in Ephesians chapter 2 verses 1 through 10 is that there's a very similar arc at play between these stories and the Christian story. Christians too should joyfully tell their story. They should embrace their story and tell it as often as they can in terms of a dark past, present brightness, and future glory. Paul says that this is the Christian story. If you're a Christian here this morning, this is your story. Own it, embrace it, celebrate it, repeat it. We were dead in our sins, Paul says. But now we're alive in Christ. Started from the bottom, now we're here. <laughs> but it doesn't stop there. From now on, we're going on into the future. We're made for good works. We're made for glorious things. Paul wants the Ephesian church to know that this is their story. This is the story they share in common with each other. This same three-part arc. So let's look at each part of the Christian story together. It's their story. It can be your story too. So part one, we were dead in sin. We were dead in sin. That's the dark beginning. Paul tells the Ephesians, look at verse one, that the beginning of their story is the lowest part of their story. And it is characterized by two things. Death and slavery. How bad was the, was the start of your story? Death and sin and slavery to it. In verse 1, Paul says that we were all once dead in our trespasses and sins in which we once walked. 
Sin and transgressions, you can think of it as kind of like bookends of, of the moral landscape and Christian thinking. Um, it encompasses just the whole variety, all of the contours of wrongs that humans can be guilty of before God. Sin, that word refers to failing to reach God's high standards in his commands. We read from the Beatitudes, sin would be failing to meet those standards. So God says that we are to love him with all of our hearts. We just give him a part. You know, God tells us to be generous with all that he's given to us. And we just, we just give the bare minimum, if anything at all. He tells us to be holy as he is holy. And, and we refuse to even lift a finger to that end. On the other hand, on the other side of the spectrum is transgressions. And that's referring to uh, going past God's standards, to step over them, to ignore them, to transgress them. So God tells us that our lips were made for building each other up, for praising each other. And what do we do? We use our speech to tear each other down, uh, to gossip, to belittle, to disparage other people. God tells us that sexual expression is built to be within the confines of uh, of marriage that he's prescribed for us. The marital union, one man, one woman to the exclusion of all others for life. And we go past, we go beyond that standard. We lust, we use each other, we use pornography. We ignore and we step over the standards that God's given for us. So both by what we do, but also by what we fail to do, we both sin and we transgress against God. And this brings death. This is deadening spiritually. And so our former way of life is described by this whole spectrum of sin and transgression. But that's not all. It's also defined by a certain type of slavery to sin. Look at verse 2 where Paul describes how we all once walked. It says, he says, following the course or the way or the path of the world. Following the prince of the power of the air. Uh, this is referring to uh, the wicked, malevolent, supernatural, unseen spiritual forces that are at work in our world. Uh, principally Satan the great liar, the opponent of God and his people. Paul says we all once followed him. Maybe we didn't know it. Maybe we didn't realize that that was happening, but we were his lackeys. He sang a tune and we danced to it. Following here isn't like following an Instagram account, you know, something that you have on mild, with mild interest. You can stop following whenever you want. No, this kind of following is like the way a slave follows someone who drags him by a chain. This is following like someone who doesn't have any self-control left follows their pleasures and desires. You can see that actually in verse 3. Uh, Paul says that our fleshly passions and cravings, the desires of our body and mind, they ruled over us. We were powerless, powerless unless someone intervened, powerless unless someone set us free. We were slaves to them. Now, Paul describes these two categories, dead and enslaved, of all people ever born after Adam, the first man, saved Jesus Christ himself. Every person who has been born, this is the beginning of their story. Now, um, this might come as a surprise to you. Maybe you actually disagree with what I've just said. Maybe if you're here this morning, you're not a Christian, you know, you're just kind of checking things out, you actually might be a little bit offended that I said this. You're like, I'm not spiritually dead. I'm not enslaved, that's for sure. Maybe you know people in your life who seem to be filled with life. They're, they're, they, they seem like they're deeply spiritual to you, but who don't follow Christ. They have no interest in the Christian faith. What does Paul say about them? And let me, let me at first just agree with you, okay? You and I encounter people who aren't Christians every day, who, for example, are physically fit. 
right? They run a half marathon before you and I have even opened, you know, one of our eyelids in the morning. They forsworn sugar, you know, and, and they're as hardy, healthy, self-controlled, and as strong as you can possibly get. You and I encounter people every day who aren't Christians, who have a mental capacity far beyond our own, right? Like, they maneuver through life intellectually, spiritually, culturally, emotionally, professionally, like they're playing grandmaster chess. Uh, you and I encounter people who aren't Christians, whose personalities, whose creative gifts, their artistic depth, their warmth, their, their vigor inspire us and challenge us. It seems like they're living life in technicolor. They're, you know, they're bright and shiny, but listen, this is what Paul's saying. No matter how impressive a person is physically, mentally, in their relationships or in their personality, where it matters most in their undying souls, if they are turned away from the only source of real life, from Jesus Christ himself, unless they know him, they have no life. They are dead and enslaved spiritually. The British theologian John Stotty put it like this, a life without God is a living death. Those who live it are dead even while they're living. I'll say that again. A life without God, the God who rescued Israel from Egypt, the God who raised Jesus Christ from the dead, a life without that God is a living death. Those who live it are dead even while they're living. Jesus asks a similarly uh, appointed statement, question in Luke chapter 9 verse 25. He asks, what good is it for someone to gain the whole world, to gain the whole world, to have everything and yet forfeit their own soul? This is where the Ephesians were. This is the story they all share in common. This is where we all once were, without distinction. Not some of us, all of us. And this would be devastating news. The room is oddly quiet, if not for the second part of this story. And while it's true, we were all once dead, enslaved to sin. That's our common dark beginning. There is a part two to the Christian story. The second part of a Christian story is that we are now alive in Christ, saved by grace. Alive in Christ, saved by grace. This is the dramatic turnaround in the story. Uh, this is actually far more dramatic than the other two stories, right? Like one rapper's dramatic turnaround is this. You know, birthdays were the worst days. Now we sip champagne when we're Thursday, right? Like, like that's, that's dramatic, right? That, that, that's kind of nice. Um, uh, entrepreneurs, their turnaround, their, their boast is, I was penniless, unknown, exhausted, but now I'm a success. Now I'm worth something. But Christians, we get to make an infinitely greater boast. We've had an experience, an infinitely greater turnaround. I was dead, and now I'm alive. I was spiritually deadened to the things of God, and now I can taste and see that he's good. I had no life, as Paul writes in chapter 2, I was separated from Christ. I had no hope. I was without God in the world. I was once just led along by my passions and desires, following the way of the world, following the way of evil spiritual forces, but now I'm free. What changed? What happened? What was the pivot point? Look at verse 4 of our text. Two words, but God, but God. God, being rich in mercy, because of the great love with which he loved us, even when we were dead in our trespasses, made us alive together with Christ, by grace you have been saved. You were dead. 
That is your story. There was nowhere to go from this story, right? Like, if, if you've ever opened a book or, or, or a biography or an autobiography of someone, if page one is like, you were dead, there's nowhere to go with this story. <laughs> like, that's, that's, the, that's actually the end, not the beginning. But for us, this is the beginning of our story. Our story continued, but it continued to life because we serve the God who raises the dead. Those decisive words of verse 4, we were dead, but God changes everything. Paul is clear here. God has done a saving work among the Ephesians. But he's clear that there are many in the world who are still dead in their sins, right? Still enslaved to their cravings and their desires. Uh, the work that Christ's done in giving people life isn't applied to all people without distinction. It is applied particularly to certain people, to those who are his. So the question is, if I find myself today dead in my sins, enslaved and without hope, what can I do to be saved from this living death? How do I get out of death? How can God's mercy and grace, which is promised here in Ephesians chapter 2, be for me? If you look down at verse 8, Paul describes that change. For by grace you've been saved through faith. I hope you say it there. This is very important. This life and freedom is received through faith. Uh, faith has been described as, as the instrument that receives God's grace and mercy. It's the empty hand that doesn't cling to anything else but Christ alone. It reaches out and it takes hold of the free gift that God offers. Faith doesn't create anything. Faith isn't a work in itself. It simply receives. It rests upon Jesus and his work for our own forgiveness and freedom. Paul cautions us. And look at verses 8 through 9 again. This is important. For by grace you have been saved through faith. And this is not your own doing. It is the gift of God. Not a result of works. So that no one may boast. Spiritually dead people can't do anything. They can't do good. They can't have faith. Again, deadness is referring to the inability to do anything. They can't even extend that empty hand to take hold of faith. And so God himself gives this faith as a gift. It is the gift of God. He gives it in such a way that we really and truly believe, but also in such a way that you and I can never boast about it. We can never boast about our faith. And this is probably where the three different story arcs diverge the most prominently. This turn from our dark beginnings to our shining present, this is the definitive boasting moment for both hip-hop artists and entrepreneurs, right? Especially in hip-hop. Like, I'm not sure if you've ever heard some, some of the over-the-top boasting that MCs make about how talented, about how rich, uh, about how brilliant they are. It would be hilarious if it weren't so sad. But how could you not boast about yourself if you started from absolutely nothing and now you've got everything? You're on top of the world. Everybody knows your name and sings your songs. How could you not boast if you built a powerhouse company up from nothing with your own blood, sweat, and tears? MCs and entrepreneurs are by nature boasters. They must be. How could they not be? All they have, all that they are now, is because of their own work. How different it is with Christians. How different it must be with Christians. All they have, all that we are now is by grace. God giving us something that we didn't deserve, something that we cannot earn. Not a thing that you have as a Christian is deserved. Everything you have, everything you are, is a gift from God. Christians are where they are 
Sinners saved by grace because of God's love for them alone. Full stop. Listen, there's not to be a shred of boasting in the church. Again, not not just the external boasting, but also the internal boasting that all of us uh, tend tend to have. Evaluating the people around us, thinking ourselves better than some, maybe worse than others. There's no spiritual flexing permitted in the church of Christ. There should be no looking down at our nose at the worst sinners among us. There should be no patting ourselves on the back because of our spiritual sensitivity, our brilliance in following after Christ. If you can think of something that you can boast about, you've not understood the completeness of your deadness, the totality of it, how it has infected your actions, your desires, your thoughts, your passions, your longings. You haven't yet recognized how hopelessly enslaved you were to Satan by your own wayward passions. And because of that, you're not able to understand the unbelievable glories and grace that God has showered on you. That where you are is by his grace alone. So this is part one of the story, uh, of the Christian story. You were dead in sin. This is part two. You are now alive in Christ. And part three, we're now created for good works created for good works. Paul concludes with verse 10. You can see it there. For we are God's workmanship, created in Christ Jesus for good works, which God prepared beforehand that we should walk in them. My backyard shed is, you know, maybe maybe a month away from being, you know, uh, uh, unusable. Maybe not that far. It's more in the future. It's rotting. It's in trouble. Jake's shaking his head. Yeah, it's, it's not looking good. The diagnosis isn't really good. But I had a friend who, who does like artistic woodwork and he was over at our house and he saw the wood floors of our shed and he's like, if you're going to throw these out, give them to me. I can use them. I can make something awesome out of this. These boards really are just junk in my mind. <laughs> like in my hands, I can't really do much with them, but in his hands, he can do something incredible. And that word workmanship here in verse 10, it can be translated as God's handiwork, God's creative work. We were once dead. Uh, and when God saves us, when he rescues us from that, he intends to do something awesome with us. He, he wants to remake us for his own purposes. We're God's renovation projects. He takes what was once useless, was of no use to anyone, and he makes us useful. If you've been forgiven... Listen, God's got plans for you. He says, I can use you. He says, I can do something awesome with you. In this part of the story arc, listen, it's as important as the others are. We must not miss this part. Um, really, the whole second half of the, of the letter to the Ephesians deals with this. Now that we've been rescued by grace alone, how are we to live? What are we to do? So briefly, we'll just talk about it this morning. Uh, but we must not miss this part of the story. It's essential. Jesus' ministry was to seek and to save lost sheep. But listen to that full quote that we already read from Luke chapter 9. Whoever wants to be my disciple must deny themselves, take up their crosses daily, and follow me. Whoever wants to save their life will lose it. Whoever loses their life for me will save it. What good is it for someone to gain the whole world and yet lose or forfeit their very self, their own soul? Jesus expected that all those who followed him in faith would live dramatically different kinds of lives afterwards. They deny themselves. They they would lose their lives in order to follow him. They would obey his word, whatever he said to them. We were dead in our sins. Now we're saved by grace. And he looks at us and he says, I'm going to make something of you. I'm going to do something awesome with you. 
This is what it means to be made for good works. You can't have Jesus' forgiveness for your sins and not expect him to pull you out of your decayed, shed life. That's what he has come to do and to make something gloriously different out of you. Let's finish our time by considering two applications of this marvelous three-part story arc. The first is very simple. Rehearse the story. Understand that it is your story. If you want to share the gospel, share the Christian faith with other people, this is the place to start. I was once completely dead, trapped in my sins, but God, being rich in mercy, rescued me, gave me life in Christ, and now he has changed me for his purposes. A second application is that uh, we should, this is a long one, but we should take stock of the good works that God's laid before us and act on them. This is, this is the second application. We should take stock of all the good works that God's laid before us. We know that he has. That's what Ephesians 2.10 uh, says. And we should act on them. Has God called you in this season of life to be a parent? Has he given you uh, wealth uh, and resources that others in your life lack? Has he given you a particular set of skills? Has he created in you a desire to encourage others, to strengthen others, to support the suffering? Take note of that and then begin to follow Christ obediently by doing good works in those areas. Sometimes Christians, we can get lost and, and kind of enamored in the first two parts of our story arc, that, that we're sinners saved by grace and they forget that this is meant to lead us into good works. Yes, we're sinners. Yes, we're forgiven. We'll never stop singing about this and remembering this. But we must remember that the people, the challenges, the suffering around us, these are opportunities for us to live out the good works that God has prepared for us. And so let me encourage you to act on them. Look at your life, the people in your life, your workplace. This is what God has laid forward for you. Develop some kingdom hustle. Be eager to be used by God to do something awesome for him and his kingdom. Take stock, make a plan, start walking. The third point of application, our last one, is be bold about your forgiveness. Be bold about your forgiveness. Maybe you are the worst sinner that you know. There are things in your life that nobody in this room knows about, things that you have kept hidden, that bring you shame, that bring you guilt. You fear if you said them out loud, if they were, you know, placed in our bulletin some Sunday, you would never be able to show your face again. Today's the Lord's Day. It's a day where we're called to gather together so we can rest and rejoice in what God's done for us. But some of us come into this room carrying some serious baggage. Our sin just always hangs over our head. The things we've done, the things that we've left undone. Our former life haunts us. And again, we just bathe in shame and guilt all the time. Martin Luther, who was the German reformer in the 16th century, he was a bold man. He believed wholeheartedly with his whole heart, that God had forgiven him in Christ. And he acted accordingly. He spoke accordingly. Some might call it arrogance, <laughs> how arrogant he was about his forgiveness. But in reality, it was just faith. It was taking God exactly at his word, not leaving one part out. Listen to what Luther wrote. He wrote, when the devil throws our sins up to us and declares that we deserve death and hell, we ought to speak thus. I admit that I deserve death and hell. What of it? Does this mean that I shall be sentenced to eternal damnation? By no means. For I know one who suffered and made satisfaction on my behalf. His name is Jesus Christ, the Son of God. Where he is, there I shall be also. Friends, be bold about your forgiveness. 
Sing it. Celebrate it. Don't hold back. Don't hang your head. Where Christ is, there you shall be also. Luther was happy. He was confident. He was bold. He was boastful, but not in himself. He knew his story arc well. This is the story that Paul tells the Ephesians, the story that can be true of you today if you're a Christian. It's the story that can be yours if you would extend an empty hand to take hold of Jesus Christ as he's offered to you in this good news. We were all dead once, enslaved to our sins and our passions, but in Christ we're made alive. We are close to him, the savior of sinners, and made for good works which he's prepared beforehand for us. Let's pray. Our Father, we rejoice and we're glad at this good news. I pray that it would bring change and comfort to those who hear it. Father, our sins are very great and your, yet your grace is greater. Would you help us as a church, as individuals who hear this word, to hold on to it for dear life? Would you transform our lives and our homes, our, 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 our neighborhood, our city, our country, by holding on to this good news? Uh, Lord, we ask for your help. We ask for your spirit to open our eyes, to open our ears. Those who have never believed this good news, would they accept it now? Those who have grown up hearing this good news and have trusted it, would they trust it again today? Father, do this great work, we ask. We invite you all to turn to the Lord's Prayer and our worship guide. We ask all of these things in the name of our Lord Jesus Christ, who taught us to pray, saying, Our Father in heaven, hallowed be your name. Your kingdom come, your will be done, on earth as it is in heaven. Give us this day our daily bread, and forgive us our debts, as we also have forgiven our debtors. And lead us not into temptation, but deliver us from evil. For yours is the kingdom, and the power, and the glory, forever. Amen.